in Parshas Bereshis, as the creation of man is described, and is really described last to demonstrate man's potential to rise from the mocking mass of the natural world and assume his legitimate title, his legitimate throne, as the pinnacle of creation. Because he's gifted, aside from being pure material or matter, he's gifted, as the Torah writes, with Tzalem Elohim or Demus Elohim. A divine image or a divine capacity. Now, clearly, the divine image, Tzalem Elohim, refers to a broad range of human features which are uniquely human. Intelligence, emotion, cognition, creativity, imagination, all that which distinguishes us in the animal kingdom. But when Unculus tries to not describe or portray Selim by the features I mentioned earlier, freedom of choice could be counted as well, but actually define what the word most directly refers to, Selim and it's a troubling and, and even provocative phrase because Hashem doesn't have any physical image, so the intelligence and the creativity and the freedom of choice which we are endowed with can't be uh, you know, in a physical representation of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. So Onkelos interprets Salam Elohim as Nefesh Mimalala, a speaking individual, a speaking persona. Recognizing speech as the main conduit or the primary expression of our uniquely human features, the ability to communicate, but not just communicate in some sub-instinctive role as mammals communicate or as fish communicate to determine migration, mating, residence, but to employ our speech in a creative and interactive manner. The power of human speech is, of course, on display very early in creation, and the vulnerability of human productivity and human prosperity if and when speech is confounded in the story of Migdal Bavel, where the unity which enables the prosperity and the technological advance, that unity is driven by the entire globe unifies not just in purpose but in belief and in value system. And both the cause, as well as the effect of that unity, is Safar Chassid Varim Achadim, and they're capable, at least in their minds, of divine-like behavior. And when HaKadosh Baruch Hu punishes them for their excess ambition, he punishes them by rerouting or disrupting that linguistic unity. Um, There's a very interesting Gemara in the beginning of Avakama. Bhavakama describes four different tracts of property damage, four different manners in which a person could be culpable for damages which he or his property inflicts upon someone else's property. Arba Avos Nazikim, the well-known beginning of Bhavakama, Hashor Vihabor, Vihamave Vihever, and Shor refers to some form of damage inflicted by an animal you possess. Boar refers to an obstacle, and most classically a pit, which causes someone to trip and rupture or, or damage my, uh, body or possessions. 
Hever is fire, which was left unwatched and uncontrolled. And Mave. Mave is a very unclear type or unclear form of damage. It's not, alt- it's not evident, at least immediately, what Mave, Membe's Ayin Hei, refers to. So the Gemara in Bavakama cites the position of Rav, who associates the term Mave with Adonamazek, the person who personally inflicts damage. Not upon another person, but at least upon another person's possessions. I'm a Rav. Rav says, Mav is a Adam. Mav is a form of Adam Hamazik. And to bolster his association between the word Adam, or the concept of man, and the abstract concept of Mave, the form of Nezek, described by the word Mave, Bez Ayin Hei, so Rav cites a Pasuk in Yeshaya. Amar Shomer Asavoker, the watchman claims that the morning has come, Vagam Laila. Into Bayun Bayun, if you will seek it. Well, Rashi at least interprets this Pasuk to be a reference to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the watchman of history, so to speak, who announces, heralds the approach of redemption, Asavokir, the morning of history has arrived, Vigam Laila, and history which will be accompanied by darkness or evening for the wicked whose sun will fade or whose presence will exterminate eschatologically in the final apocalypse. Into Bayun Bayun, if and redemption will emerge if we seek it, if we request, if we look for God's penitence and for absolution and we pray for redemption. In Tabayun Bayun means we speak, we request, we seek. And Rav essentially sees man as a speaker, someone who speaks, lodges requests of a Kurdish Baruchu. So to speak, is part of the very definition of being a human being. So much so that the human being's activities are described in Bavakama as Mave. Now it's interesting that Bavakama should choose this term to refer to man. There are many other ways to refer to man. And yet it chooses the term Mave, which refers to human speech and the employment of the human tongue as a reference to Adam. Because just as the human tongue can be empowering to the human condition, elevates man above animal, it also can be a destructive and deteriorating or corrosive force, both in the manner in which our speech can inflict harm and damage upon others in the literal bavakama sense, arba avos nazikin hashor vihabor vihamave vihahever, our speech and our tongue can indeed become a form of nezek, and of course, in the existential self, independent of the damage we inflict on others, the moral corrosion which improper linguistic employment causes upon a human being. So the way in which we employ or guard our tongue, what is typically known as Shmirat HaLashon, is an essential, vital aspect of human success or of human deterioration and of corruption. And the areas of speech and of verbal care are both um, diverse and numerous. Amir Tashem, both in this year and the next year, I hope to describe, to articulate some of these issues. One area of Shmira Salashon, one could even say the fundamental area of Shmira Salashon, is not how to speak what to say, 
what content, but when to speak. There is a well-known Mishnah. The Mishnah is in Perkei and it's a statement authored by Rabbi Akiva, excuse me, by uh, Shimon, Shimon, the son of Ibn Gamliel. It's in Perak Aleph, Mishnah Yudzayin. Shimon ben Aomer, kol yama gidalte ben achachamim. Shimon was exposed, of course, to great personalities, to venerated scholars and Tanoim through his father, visiting his father. They uh, took the time to, to, to speak, or at least to expose to Shimon. Shimon ben Aomer, kol yama gidalte ben achachamim, v'lo matzasi leguftav el and I found that the most desirable trait, the most important aspect of human behavior was shtika. The recognition, and not just the recognition, but the strength of character to speak and to withdraw speech or to withhold speech at the appropriate moment. It takes strength of character. It also takes discretion, wisdom. Um, sagacity to know when is the proper time for words. There are times to speak, as Shlomo Malach says, and there are times to withhold speech, to refrain from speech. Um, a parallel medrash, a parallel mission in Perkei Avos, in the name of Rabbi Akiva. So the, mish, the Mishnah begins in Avos Paragimel, Mishnah Yud Gimel, Schok Vekalos Rosh, Margilinli Erva, improper use of speech, frivolity, and sexual flirtation can enable, can facilitate the type of behavior which will yield chait. And the conclusion of that marriage is siyag l'chach mashtika. Bikiva describes shatika as a hedge, as a protectant for shtika, for, for chachma. It's a siyag l'chachma. It is something which enables chachma, pre- pre- presumably, because the person who's quiet is listening and acquiring knowledge, presumably because his discretion allows him at least to appear, not that appearances are always that important, but at least to speak at the appropriate time and to say things that are suitable. And suitability is a, uh, is a, corral- is a corollary of wisdom. But not just is the ability for silence a generator of wisdom, but it's probably also a result of wisdom. It's not just a siag, but it's a simon. It's an expression of wisdom. People who are wise don't, don't merely possess the strength of character, but the intuition that not every moment of silence requires a filler, requires words. Um, perhaps the, the most um, glaring example of this in the Torah, the most powerful form of silence occurs, occurs in Pasha Shemini, on the day of the great tragedy, when Aaron was expecting absolution, Aaron was expecting vindication, he was expecting some sort of moral and even personal rehabilitation from his role in the Chet HaEgel. And tragically, his two children are incinerated. And at the very least, you would expect a person under that stress and under those conditions to be granted some sort of stay or outlet for personal grief, mourning, and yet he's instructed by Moshe, HaKadosh Baruch Hu instructs Moshe to instruct Aaron not to, not to disrupt, not to compromise the national celebration, the long-awaited day of induction by personal tragedy, through personal mourning. And you can well imagine, it's hard to imagine Chalil Vachas, but one can even begin to imagine the type of anxiety and horror that Aaron faces 
And yet he submits to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's interest. Vayidom Aharon, Aharon is silent, Aharon is quiet. And the Medrash praises Aharon's silence. The Lashon of the Medrash in Vayikra Rabbah, Parsha Yudbeis, Kiven Shashama Aaron Shabanavirei Shemayim Hain Shasak Vekibol Schar Al Shtikasa. Aaron was quiet, and part of that silence the Medrash describes as a visionary silence. He realized that his children's death played a larger role. So was the wisdom to cast his tragedy in a broader sense and not lend voice to his personal frustration because he was able to counterbalance the personal frustration with some far some broader national vision and role and purpose to the suffering. But part of that silence was undoubtedly just simply moral courage and fortitude to withhold the cry and the shriek of agony when it just wasn't appropriate or wasn't, or was, HaKadosh uh, Baruch Hu had requested its stifling, even without the capacity to reconcile himself and the broader unfurling tragedy. Um, it's a very interesting variant Girsa of Onkelis. Some Chumashim actually cite this variant Girsa. This variant Girsa interprets the phrase Vayidom Aharon, the literal and the more classic interpretation in Aramaic would be Vishosik Aharon, that Aharon is quiet. But some variant editions have the word Vishabach Aharon, that Aharon praises HaKadosh Baruch Hu at this moment. Now the praise which this variant version of Onkelos refers to could be an actual praise, that Aharon was Mishabach, Aharon praised HaKadosh Baruch Hu, um, sort of accepting the divine will, the divine decree. Or the Shevach, which this uh, interpretation refers to, may have just been his very silence. The silence of Aharon was an act of praise and glorification, the ability of Aharon to display that submission and that silence. So Aharon's image... In Parsha Shmini, casts a very, very long and powerful shadow, and in fact, it seems to have a very salutary influence, at least morally, on others around him who are learning the power of silence. According to one interpretation of Chazal, Nadav and Haviu, who were incinerated, were punished, at least in part, because they preempted Moshe, they offered their own ruling to a particular question about lighting the Mizbeach, which had emerged. And at a later stage, where the karbanos are processed, at least in a way that Moshe hadn't anticipated, Moshe casts his anger at the two remaining children of Aharon, Elazar and Isamar. Why were the karbanos rerouted? And Moshe, for his sake, doesn't want to embarrass or mortify Aharon, so he um, tilts his anger towards the children. And the children themselves, Elazar and Isama, are silent, allowing Aaron to respond, even though they had been, so to speak, called out. And the fury had been directed against them, even though Aaron was the responsible one. They didn't try to defend themselves or vindicate or quit themselves. They allowed Aaron to speak. And in a direct sense, they're offering some sort of repair to the sins of their brothers, who were Moher Halacha, who offered a Halacha in the beginning of this episode, without allowing either Moshe or Aharon to offer their opinion. But in the a more particular sense, they're taking their cue from their father, whose silence, Vayidom Aharon, demonstrated, as Rabbi Akiva said, Siag l'chach mashasika, or as Shimon Mishim Gamil said, Lamatzasi griftov mishtika. It's a very beautiful story in Brachos Nunches, which also highlights the power of silence. Um... 
slightly related, a little bit of a different slant on the role or the the um, the source is probably a better word of silence. Rav Sheshis was blind, and Sadducee at Stuki once was pestering him, as they were wont to do. Many statements in the Gemara express disproportionate, um, one could even call it manipulation or discrimination against the Stukim, in part based on a retaliation for some of the measures which the Stukim adopted. In certain cases, the Stukim gained political edge, and they wielded that edge in a very vicious fashion against the Prussian, and in part because the stakes were so high, the future of Torah and Jewish theology was was uh, was in suspension. So Sheshus was blind, and the entire population went off to greet the king. And the Tztuki taunted Rav Sheshis and said, you'll never know when the king comes because you're blind. And Rav Sheshis guaranteed him that I will be able to discern the king's presence and you won't. Um, presumably the Tztuki chuckled, but waited for this um, futile demonstration. At a certain point, the first century of soldiers passed with blaring horns loud sounds, and the Tzuki assumed that the king was approaching, and Rav Sheshis assured him the king was not yet appearing. And then a second wave of soldiers passed with their bl- trumpets blaring and their loud horns, and Tzuki leapt into action, assuming that the king was arriving, and Rav Sheshis assured him, or actually corrected him, the king had yet to arrive in the third. And, and finally, the Tzuki had proven his utter inability to detect the king's presence, and then there was silence, and Rosh Hashanah says, well, the king is here. And indeed, the king was arriving in the midst of silence, the quiet in the eye of the storm, so to speak. And the Tzuki asked Rosh Hashanah, you're blind, how did you detect the king? And Rosh Hashanah could have said, because deep people, people of importance, people of real value, don't have to, have to emit sound, don't have to announce their presence. Their presence is its own center of gravity, doesn't need loud trumpeted experience, but to demonstrate this point, Rav Sheshit cited the Pasuk, when Eliyahu climbs up to Harakarmel, Malachim, and Baruch Hu instructs him to say, V'yamarata b'har lefnei Hashem, v'yamarata b'har lefnei Hashem over, v'ruch yidola, v'chazak mefarei karim, v'shaber slaim, and Eliyahu encounters a strong wind which shatters and pulverizes mountain, lo v'ruch Hashem, God is not in this um, gale storm, and after the gale storm comes loud sounds and thunder. The fire succeeds the thunder. Called a quiet, undetectable, almost voice. And Rav Sheshes, in his wisdom, he had an imaginative eye, was able to discern the presence of the king in a manner that the Tztuke, or presumably others who were just gifted with optical sight, eyesight, were unable to. And perhaps the story attests not to the association between silence and intelligence, but simply the, um, the nobility of silence. So this episode between Avshashis and the Tztuke demonstrates the association not between silence and intelligence or in the manner of Rabbi Akiva, but nobility of spirit, um, lack of a need to announce a trumpet, your presence. Um, as the common phrase goes, still waters run deep and shallow waters uh, crackle with a lot of noise. And the deeper a person is, the more, um, not withdrawn, but the more attuned to 
value system and inner conviction that doesn't require external ratification, the less of a need to fill empty space with noise, with idle chatter. So before describing how we employ our tongues and what we say with our tongues, and how we say it, in fact, Shmiras um, Halashon is first of all a question of when we use our tongues. Uh, I mentioned the example of Aharon HaKohen and Vayidom Aharon. There's another example, and in this case, the silence is vital or strategic, not in a theological or moral sense. Aharon's silence resonates with um, moral strength and theological submission, recognition of a Kurdish Baruch whose will is superior to human need. But the value of silence at a purely practical level, um, sometimes we're angry, and sometimes we are baited into saying things out of anger, and silence would have been a wiser option. And in retrospect, we wish we would have chosen that option. Um, Yaakov's sons um, accost Yaakov, challenging him to release them, and or actually, ultimately, they do over, overwhelm him and launch this attack on the neighboring citizens of Shrem. But Yaakov was the first to discover, seemingly the first to discover amongst the family that Dina had been raped, and the Pasuk in Bereshus Lamedala describes Perak Lamedala Pasuk Hevi Yaakov Shama Kiti Meiz Dina Bito Uvanaf Hayuas Mikneu Basada VeHacharish Yaakov Ad Boam, and the contrast between Yaakov's um, strategic silence, not to launch into a swift and on and uh, unexamined retaliatory stance, and the contrast between Yaakov's deportment and that of his sons, who perhaps are a bit impetuous, are a bit militant in their response. And again, it's unclear from the Torah. Yaakov challenges them. He's upset with their behavior. He curses their anger and parshas vayechi. And yet, the brothers have the last word. But at the very least, it seems like Yaakov's temperance a temperance which is described by the Torah as silence, Vecharish Yaakov, he's silent, he doesn't make any sound, and he doesn't feel the need to, um, to respond out of anger. So in this case, silence becomes almost a metaphor for self-control, and self-control, again, not just in the moral sense, but in the interpersonal sense, and not a, a moral act of heroism, but rather just a wise and discretionary act to be able to modulate response and behavior in a more coherent and hopefully successful fashion. Um, the second area of Shmiras HaLashon, and this of course begins to address not when we speak, but how we speak and how we deploy our, our power of speech, concerns um, pure language and impure language. very well-known Gemara describes the severity of nibble peh, of describing sexual activity in graphic and um, seemingly trivial detail, what we would call in the common parlance pornography, turning sexual activity from a noble and religious component of a marital framework into a cheap and um, egotistical interest of pleasure deriving from a person's body rather than a pivot of a broader relationships. So Amr of Khan and Barava, the Gemara and Shabbos Laman Gimel describes Akol Yodim Kala Lama Nichnasel Everyone understands what marriage is about, there's no secret. 
Whoever describes it, luxuriates in its description, perhaps jokes about it. Uh, sexual jokes is one of the oldest forms of comedy, of humor. Many, much of Greek comedy centers around sexual allusion and reference. Whoever employs his tongue to indulge in sexual descriptions and portrayal, so even if heaven had already decreed a positive and promising future, that decree, that gizardim, even of 70 years, can be inverted or subverted into penalty and into misfortune. Um, the internet is, of course, the medium by which this shear is being broadcast. This is a podcast or a pod shear, and certainly we've become attuned to the great power of the internet to unleash and to disseminate Torah in manners that hadn't even been imagined, but also one of the great dangers of internet use, and a danger that has encouraged many to avoid the internet altogether, is the proliferation of pornographic material, imagery, discussion, and certainly that's a challenge that, or danger that requires addressing and consideration well beyond the parameters of this year. This is a year about Shemir HaSalashon, but it certainly would be um, it would be inappropriate to describe this Gemara without alluding to the great challenge which Internet provides. Um, but this Gemara in Shabbos is, first of all, not describing primarily a linguistic or verbal danger. Obviously, pornography in our own day is primarily visual, though not exclusively. In their day, it may have been more verbal. But ultimately, it isn't limited to the medium of speech. And second of all, what's interesting is that somehow um, this term nibble peh, described by the Gemara in Shabbos Lamed Gimel, has almost taken on a life of its own and has been applied and associated with experiences and, and verbal usage, which really isn't even nibble peh. Very often when people employ common curse words, vulgar, unrefined language, so immediately that's described as nibble peh. When, in truth, sadly enough, curses have become so predominant and so ubiquitous in the, the, the cultural language, the cultural discourse, that they've probably become independent. They've, they've been granted autonomy from their original associated imagery. So some of the words which people often employ as a curse may have initially referred to certain sexual forms of behavior, but they've become so preponderant and so embedded in our vocabulary that I would be very uncomfortable referring to them as nimble pet because when they're used, they probably are not employed with the associated imagery. They're just spoken as a poor substitute for refined language. person employs uh, curse words as substitutes for modifiers, for adjectives, sometimes for nouns, for occasion, uh, verbs as well. And, and instead of achieving acuity and um, precision of language, and acuity and precision of language yields sharpness and precision of thought. Words clothe our thoughts, and the more precise we are in the words we employ, the more graphic, the more sensitive, the more discretionary our language is. Eskimos, a very popular study, discovered that Eskimos, Eskimos have numerous terms for snow because snow is just that much more important part of their lives, of their experiences, so they have to necessarily differentiate between different forms of snow. 
Um, for us, snow is a peripheral element of our experience, and we can just collect all forms of snow into one general term and, and call it snow or shellac. So uh, Eskimos are forced to lend greater precision to their interaction with snow, and that precision is mediated by precision of language. So uh, curses, on the one hand, display a, voc- uh, a generality of language, employing the same term to describe vastly different experiences, it also is a vulgarity of language and a vulgarity of association. And I would refer to it not as nibble pa in the classic sense, but as Lushan Shaina Nakia. Just ugly, inelegant, undignified, crass, um, it's inherently crass, and of course crass by association, because by employing these terms, you're creating associations with others who employ these terms and perhaps their lifestyles and their value systems. Um, perhaps the Statement of Chazal, it's the Gemara Sachim, it's also a parallel Medrash and Bracious and Parshas Noach, as well as Sefer Bracious, Parshas Noach, as well as Parshas Tazria, that uh, when the Torah describes the animals who entered the Ark with Noach, so it describes the animals, the impure animals who entered, and the impure animals, two of each animal were taken to once again proliferate and repopulate the planet. And the pure animals, the Behemoth Tahara, of course, many more, seven were taken to enable Noach to offer korbanos. And the Torah describes Behemoth Tahara, the pure animals, and the animals who were not pure. And the Torah desists from employing the language of Behemoth even though that would have been a sharper description, a more direct description of the non-Tahara animals, the inverse, the antonym of Tahara is Tame, the Torah so to speak, wastes extra letters. And the Torah is not want for wasting letters. The Torah is very, very um, careful about the letters. And each letter refers to um, numerous halachos, numerous concepts, both halachically and midrashically. And yet in this instance, the Torah felt appropriate to waste its letters, so to speak, by writing a share enenu Torah instead of employing the term temeah. This is not pornography, this is not nibopeh. It's just clean, pure, gifted, elegant, aristocratic, noble language, rather than saying something which is what we would call not pornographic, but inappropriate, vulgar, or inelegant. A similar issue, uh, which may border upon pornography, but to me seems like more lashon nikia is in Parshas Mitzorah as the halachos of a zav and a zava, a male and a female, who each experience the issue of impure bodily fluids. And because they become tame, they can impart tuma not just by touching, but by exerting their weight upon an item, by sitting or lying or riding upon an item, even if they don't come into contact with that item, even conceivably if there was some barrier between their body and the chair, between their body and the bed, between their body and the chariot they were riding upon, or the wagon, they would still impart truma because their weight is being shouldered by the bottom item. This is known as Tumas Mishkav, Moshav, and Merkav. So when the truma of a Zav, of a male person, is described, the Torah describes him as riding on a horse amongst the type of scenes of his exerting pressure. And when a woman is described, it describes her as sitting, but not riding, because a woman riding may excite certain imagery. So I think that example in Parshas Mitzorah maybe is closer to the world of Nibel Peh, but certainly the situation in Parshas Noach of describing Habahima Asher Einena Tehorah, rather than articulating Habahima Atemeah, attests to Lashon Nikia, 
not to nibble peh. And of course, the very famous opening of Meseches Psachim, describing Medikas Chametz, which occurs the night of the 14th, and the first mission describes it as Or Le Arba Asar, rather than Leal Arba Asar. And it takes its cue, according to the Gemara, the Mishnah takes its cue from that Pasuk Noach. Now, certainly, night is not pornographic, night is not ugly, night is not dirty, but day and light just creates a vision, perhaps an inspiration. We typically feel more comfortable in daytime day. It creates a, an uplifting feeling, whereas night can be a little bit frightening and subdued. So the mission itself perhaps extends. One can see the vulgarity of saying the word impurity and the desirability of some sort of euphemism or inversion, those animals which were not impure. And yet the Mishnah felt that the um, the agility of language, the elegance of language may even demand or suggest employing, especially since this is a Mishnah beginning of Masechta, using the word or, day, which of course we interpret as also referring to night, or sometimes refers to night in modern parlance, or Leon Beis, or Leon Gimel refers to the night before, but still the Mishnah preferred the term or to Laila, again reinforcing the importance of Lashon She'en and Nakia, or the dangers of Lashon She'en and Nakia, and not just the question of Nibblepeh. Mirza Shem, next year we'll discuss some of the more um, well-known and classic aspects of Shemir Lashon. Lashon Hara, Rechilos, Leitzanus, and Onastavar.